At the signal, time will be out of joint. Welcome to Weird Signal, a podcast of all things weird, eerie, and hauntological. I'm Lucy, and today we're going to be making another addition to our ongoing interview series. And this, in this episode, I'm going to be speaking with another filmmaker. His name is Gabriel Getman. Uh, he is a British-American director based in London, and his most recent film is uh, the short feature... Kike- already? <laughs> the short feature Cecilia. Well, I mean, how would you describe uh, Cecilia? Um, so, hi everyone. Uh, so Cecilia is a drama, a drama horror based on a Japanese ghost story. Um, so that's, uh, that's the kind of um, long and short of it. Uh, it's based on a tale by Lafcadio Hearn, who was one of the first ethnographers who went to Japan and um, started writing down um, some of their weirder folk tales, ghost stories, um, and things like that. So I read his book... Um, and was looking for something that um, seemed outside of the normal gothic tropes that you get in Victorian short gothic fiction and that seemed to still sort of um, repeat themselves today. So I was just looking for something very different and came across his story. And so the film Cecilia transposes that gothic folktale with all of its weird um, uh, Buddhist folklore spirituality into a... uh, uh, medieval British context. So to watch the film, you wouldn't know it was based on a Japanese folktale, other than it's got these um, these very strange uh, um, conventions and images to it that seem outside of the tradition you might normally find, you know, set around a Gothic church. Yeah, that's actually kind of that is something that I found quite striking. Uh, I think it was I'd, after I'd seen the film that you mentioned that it was. Um, that it was based on a Japanese folktale, because uh, I managed to neglect to, to uh, scroll down on the description on Vimeo. Um, but I think looking at it again, there are things that do definitely seem striking that uh, fall outside of a, tri- a typically gothic framework. Um, like the fact that, so, so the, the, the essential premise is that uh, it's this uh, young kind of blind musician who comes into the care of some monks and invokes a curse upon herself um, and um, meets a rather grim but also just fundamentally unsettling end <laughs> at least that's how i found it um but one of the things that tends to that i know really comes across in it is the fact that there aren't really um there aren't really the the coded um tenets of the gothic that there aren't these kind of like uh evil figures as such um so you know we we're introduced to monks early on and the way the gothic works a lot of the time especially in english gothic traditions which were as we this is actually something we mentioned in our folk horror episode when we covered blood on satan's claw um the english gothic uh, was traditionally very anti-spanish and so would present things like uh monks as uh these inherently cruel inherently uh tricksterish and exploitative figures um and so it is actually quite un- unusual to just come across a monk in a piece of gothic horror who is just unambiguously um, quite, you know, is genuinely caring and helpful. Well, uh, yeah, I think that's, you know, something that really interested me um, was that, you know, it, in this tradition of um, ghost stories, you know, it, it's much more archetypally balanced. So it's not that you're seeing purely the dark side of any of the characters everybody is much more human and the tragedy such as it exists is much more fatalistic so it's much less about um good versus evil as it is about the sort of yin and yang of everything um and uh the inevitability of some aspect of evil in order to have good and so you know in my film there is a monk um he tries to do a good thing you know uh, uh and look after someone who's in trouble and um, one way or another, you know, he fails. Mm. Uh, and, you know, to me, that seemed much truer than something that um, more comfortably just demonizes, say, the father figure in order to provide this storm god adversary. Uh, you know, real life's not like that. Um, yeah. And I'm just thinking just in terms of this this uh, ambiguity of 
evil. Um, just slight tangent. So one of the um, thing, one of the first things I learned about this film is uh, is that it it uh, was featured as I think it was it was the opening film of the um, of the Oregon uh, Lovecraft Film Festival yeah. um, back in 2017. Um, and I remember a conversation we had at the time when I brought it, well, uh, not long after the time, um, because obviously, um, <laughs> as far as, as listeners of this podcast will know, I'm quite a Lovecraft nut, was, um, was the fact that you didn't really identify this as a Lovecraftian story per se, but I, I gather kind of by, by its uh, featuring there, to some extent, uh, they... Um, the the committee of of the Lovecraft Film Festival recognised something recognisably well identifiably Lovecraftian about it, and I wonder if um, if the nature if this treatment of evil or rather this kind of arbitrariness of evil is something that um, that might have played a role in that because it's because like, it does feature a supernatural entity. I won't go into too much detail about what it was, but you get a sense that it um, comes across as like a it's not so much a force of evil as just a kind of force of nature that it kind of, even though it expresses itself in certain kind of recognizably sinister ways, there is a, um, a lack of determination about it. It's just something it kind of has to do. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think that's why it, you know, we had a great time at the Lovecraft um, Festival and it was really, you know, there they're incredibly passionate about Lovecraftian values, if you could call them those. Um, and it's really amazing to see, you know, uh, hundreds, if not thousands of people um, descend. You know, we had an absolutely packed out screening there. Uh, you know, this this group of people around Portland, Oregon, who really do um, believe in this stuff, who who identify, you know, incredibly with the Lovecraftian message. And I think that message and what's in common between Lovecraft and, and my film, even if I hadn't initially conceived it that way, is very much this sense of the cosmos itself as adversary. And, you know, and I think there's something really profound in that because it's, um, you know, that's the fundamental nature of archetypal thinking is that categories of good and bad or, um, you know, desire and fear are really human projections onto the more absolute and singular truth of everything. And I think that's the kind of profound aspect of Lovecraft's work, that it transcends human notions of what might be preferable for our meaningless or meaningful little lives, depending how you look at it. Um, and I think my film very much has, has something in common with that. So that's how we fit with the Lovecraft people. And, um, uh, you know, it was a, it was a whole world I didn't quite know existed, at least in such a, an incredibly vibrant and living way. Um, so it, it was a great community to engage with there. And we had some really great personal responses to the film from people there that I've kind of kept in touch with. So that was really cool. Yeah. Um, so in your bio in in your biography, as it appears on your website, uh, one of the statements that's made uh, regarding your work is that you uh, one of the things you set out to do is um, sort of kind of channel the quote, the, the power of femininity is a gateway to the dark realms of the unconscious. Um, which I'm, I'm definitely seeing a lot of in this film. Um, but I wondered kind of in the first instance, whether that's something you engaged with in perhaps a, a distinctly kind of Freudian sense or, or whether it's something you want, you kind of thought about more in terms of kind of an artistic legacy. So, um, I mean, the, to unpack that statement, you know, the language that I'm using here is more Jungian than, than Freudian. Um, in that, you know, I was trained in a system of uh, a very niche system of Jungian psychophysical analysis. So it's looking at the intersection of Jungian psychology and the body as such. So the language that I'm using, you know, in that statement um, is very much from that little tradition. Uh, so, it, it, you know, there, it is Jung's use of those terms, um, but slightly with my own take on them. I actually have written a well, I've, I've been working on a book um, that brings together that, you know, it's a it's a technical book or, or a theoretical book. So it brings together the um, uh, uh, Jungian analysis and quite well known and written about ideas on archetypes with this um, uh, with this psychophysical system that I was trained in. That's mostly about um, uh 
it's a it's a technical tool for working with actors for conceiving dramatic narratives so it's in a, in a very theatrical tradition and my work combines those two things with um uh screenwriting so with writing so with joseph campbell's work on the hero's journey and narrative structures and so it's basically asking the question at each stage in the hero's journey what is the precise psychology of the characters involved in that narrative and not only how can that psychology be quantified but how can that psychology actually be put in the body so what is the psychophysical reality of the hero's journey and that's i have about 120,000 words of notes on that so the language that i'm using in that little statement and also in um uh you know in any of my own um you know um the language i use with any of my collaborators i'm very much working within those terms that i've established for myself to try and make sense of the world and and my practice in a way that uh fits with my thinking and and perspective so when i i guess when i talk about um uh the power of femininity i'm talking about two things in you know with that language i'm talking about the anima figure in the hero's journey so i'm talking about the feminine and i guess for me you know in an archetypal sense that somehow personally um the character who's most compelling to me in the whole of that grand archetypal narrative that somehow her role um in relationship to the hero her own subjective perspective which isn't often explored uh you know and the ways in which those two things can go wrong is really fascinating to me so i'm very interested in the tragedy of the anima who becomes a temptress the lady macbeth figure the um the love interest gone wrong that that's a a theme that seems really um personal to me and then i guess the other thing that i'm talking about when i say the power of femininity is is in so, to some extent it's the power of getting out of your body getting into the world of ideas and visions that's not so grounded to the earth but is somehow more up in the heavens um and i think that uh psychological space of going to a place where you're more concerned with things that don't exist than things that do um here i'm calling or gendering feminine and i'm um uh i'm really interested in that headspace that psychophysical space where the where ideas and ideals are more important than materiality and i think that's a gift and it can lead to amazing things and it's the kind of place that an artist is trying to go to but it's also a curse and a, and and can be very tragic in its own right and you know if you if you get out of your body too much and you let your feet leave the ground well pretty soon your body'll drop off and you'll just be a spirit so um you know and that's that can be a tragedy for anybody uh if that's not if that if you're not ready for that yet so i guess that's what i mean unpacking that little statement like the body without organs <laughs> yeah well or the body you know th- that's what the buddhists say you know that you you know you want to be you know in the buddhist aim at the end of life you're just a burnt string and you know the spirit's already departed and the body just a little gust of wind it just turns to dust but you know i think too easily an artist before their time can be a burnt string well ahead of when they should be and you know that you know i think you see that in the 27 club and and all the great you know tragic poet artists who who don't don't manage to keep their feet on the ground mm-hmm. you know but i think that that certainly gives a very interesting context to this film because this because so much of this is sort of um it's kind of centered on the body and it's it it is effectively a kind of a work of body horror because it's 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 featuring scenes of kind of mutilation um and also a kind of a potential of, to go with that more of a, of a freudian reading than a jungian reading there is a there's an inherent kind of um sense of castration that um takes place in the in the final outcome of the film um but also it's just the fact that it's kind of 
I guess that's kind of merging the inherent body horror of it with the with the with the kind of gothic setting the fact that you've set it um, you've got you've centered it on someone who is kind of young and at an age of going through some some form of kind of sexual awakening or, or you know at, at the applicable age where that would happen uh surrounded by actively celibate people or kind of older people and so and so yeah there's, so there's kind of like there's either a kind of it's if not a kind of enmity on certain parts at least a um a sense of uh dis dis or distancing of othering uh physicality there yeah i think um you know to me that kind of is the dynamic of the gothic that what you get you know and body horror is obviously a kind of sensational derivation of that but you get you know um the reason the gothic is so grotesque is you're basically seeing you know bodies suffering as the soul attempts to depart that kind of to me is is the dynamic of the gothic and and so what we're doing here which is why it's a little bit body horror although i hope we weren't we weren't as interested in sensation as as a lot of those more body horror oriented artists are um i think that um uh yeah there's there's definitely a a sort of sexless aspect to the film that's quite intentional because I think it's a world you know again when I talk about the power of femininity the world of Cecilia and also the world of some of my upcoming projects it's it's a world without um without good masculinity in it it's a world where um you know masculinity as even an ideal has totally failed and in some ways I think you know that that is a decent metaphor for today's um, cultural climate, at least from some points of view. And so that's, to me, that's what the contemporary resonance of these emasculated, flowy, over-feminized worlds is. You know, I think that our generation is living in a cultural space that's, you know, not entirely unrepresented by that metaphor. Cool. Um... So in terms of uh, future projects that you mentioned, um, uh, do you, I mean, I don't really <laughs> ask you to give too much away about kind of what you're doing specifically, unless you want to talk about that, but do you see yourself as um, continuing in a, um, a direction working with horror with that, or, or do you really consider yourself working as someone who works predominantly or primarily with horror at the moment? Well, I think that, you know, I used to direct fashion ads and people kind of find that funny that you would, you would, you know, direct fashion ads and you'd direct horror movies. But to me, there's kind of not so much in terms of the power of femininity as a, as a common theme. I think there's, you know, there's not so much difference, um, you know, uh, in what, you know, in the fashion ad, you're, you're not acknowledging that the, um, you, you know, you're not acknowledging the dark underbelly of it. You're ignoring and suppressing that and giving just the glossy front of that glamour. You know, in the horror movie, you're almost flipping it the other way round. You're you're overemphasizing the uh, negative aspects of of um, living in slightly altered worlds. And so to me, you know, I never wanted to make horror movies. I just think it's what interesting to me, you know, seems to fall into that category as a marketing category. And so I do think that anything I made at any level of success would probably be marketed as some kind of classy horror film. And I think it's a great time for that because we, you know, we are seeing a sort of um, brilliant surge of interest in alternative genre material. And that's been really apparent, you know, on our festival run, um, particularly the extent to which the film played mostly in the US and less in the UK because that sort of movement, I think, is centred, you know, uh, on the American independent industry, um, you know, uh, rather than being more of a British thing. I think that um, uh, we, yeah, I have two upcoming films, one that I've just started writing with a very talented actor, friend of mine, um, and another that I've already written that we're quite close to going into pre-production on. Um, so kind of my aim with particularly the the latter of those is just to, you know, to do it so much better, to take absolute care with 
every aspect of it. I think Cecilia was rushed into in a lot of ways, and it does a lot of what I'd like it to do. Um, and I, there are, you know, aspects of it, particularly the values of it and the ideology of it that I'm very proud of. But it doesn't do all those things in quite the way I would like it to. And so I think with the new one, it's really to align the, the, the technique and the theme in a way that feels um, more cohesive and try and make something that's as me as it could possibly be, uh, a sort of statement of my interests and beliefs and ideals. Um, and so the film is called um, My Sisters and the Satyr. Uh, we're billing it as a post-apocalyptic tale of witchcraft, addiction and madness starring three sisters. And we have plans to go shoot it in um, Eastern Europe, hopefully in Serbia, where I've done some ads before and had a really great experience there. Um, and with, you know, so we'll fly three British actresses who I just about have in mind out there and um, shoot with them. So hoping to get onto that later this year or, or early next. Um, I'm very excited about that and um, have other writing projects in the works for other shorts and tentatively features you know that's ultimately what i'd like to do you know if i have the opportunity without diluting or compromising what um you know what i believe in about these projects you know i'd love the opportunity to do it on a level where it could engage with more of the people who are hungry for that lovecraftian world you know because if there's a few hundred of them in portland oregon well you can bet there's a, a sizable audience out there, you know, around the world for that if it was given to them uh, or available to them. So Certainly that would make up a uh, pretty major percentage of listeners to this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> well, we can start here and go from there. Yeah, <laughs> but the whole, the whole the concept of like post-apocalyptic occult <laughs> he described is, yeah, something yeah. that something that I'm, I'm imagining is going to be pretty exciting. Yeah, so, I mean, we're at the stage of looking for, you know, collaborators for that and all kinds of disciplines. So, you know, if that does sound like somebody's cup of tea, then um, get in touch with me by all means. So, yeah, because that's, that is kind of pertinent because one, one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about was, as you mentioned, that we are living through a very interesting moment in uh, filmmaking, especially in, in horror or genre film. Um, and it's, it's interesting as well, not just because um, these films are becoming popular and they're getting made and they're getting funded, but also because um, the level of kind of critical discourse around them has um, has has definitely burgeoned and people are talking about, not just talking about uh, films as being objectively good or bad or, or, or kind of um, how things are sort of resurgences of stuff in the past, but just generally... Um, films that invite a critical reading are becoming successful and critical readings are flourishing around that which is all very exciting but um but this is also kind of one of the things i found is this is given a given way to um some some disputes around the subject one of which is um some as, as what's now almost feels like a kind of cursed term which is post-horror uh which is one i kind of I came across a couple of years ago when uh, I think it was pretty much just used to summarize the um, the the 2010s um, renaissance of of horror, which is kind of again some like disputable territory. But um, I think part of the the hostility around it was um, the fact that it implies that horror in and of itself isn't good, and that uh, it's in the same way people um, people in terms of literature, they make the distinction between genre fiction and literary fiction. Um, and when something that is objectively, um, objectively using the, t um, using the, the, uh, the genre markings of, um, of, of science fiction or of horror, but is done using a, a certain sense, a certain focus on language or characterization more associated with what is roughly grouped into literary fiction that, People, um, people either don't want to think of it as science fiction or refer to it as something, something like, oh yeah, it's. Uh, the attitude seems to be like, oh yeah, this is science fiction, but we've made it good now, which kind of feels like a failure to uh, understand or to kind of appreciate, quote unquote, genre fiction on its own terms, or to um, recognize what was good about them in the first place, or, or really. 
um, carry anything over from them except the basic kind of dressing um, or, or, or imagery of those um, of those genres. But um, but this is and this is kind of finding its parallel in what people are calling post horror now. That's like it's horror, but we've made it good because it's art. It's arty now. One acknowledging that um, that uh, horror films never had were never kind of critically regarded as having uh, any kind of artistic merit beforehand, or that um, something about horror up until a certain point was incapable of achieving artistic credibility on on those terms or you know beyond its own terms um and and i think it's um i think this has you know come crashing down quite recently with i think there was one review which has got gone a lot of flack which was referring to the new the new film us mm. the uh what's his name jordan peele um film where it's like i think it was part of a list of something like five films that saved horror mm-hmm. um but um that was you know <laughs> and people were like well it's good but this didn't need saving i think was the attitude but i mean yeah. where do you i mean i guess this is coming around to kind of like where you see yourself in in this in this whole kind of field um, right. and and how much and how you see the debate going i guess or what you've seen of this debate sure i mean it, it was it was very interesting to me you know because this film cecilia played um comic-con in san diego uh and we had the chance to go out there and you know, we went to lots of the horror panels and met the sort of Blumhouse people and stuff like that, which was super cool. But it was it was interesting to me, and I'd never really realized this, I guess because I don't spend a lot of time engaged in this sort of discourse or debate. You know, I hadn't realized the extent to which there has been or seems to be a marked effort or, or interest in America, at least, in in really defining something as horror you know something that kind of is associated with the 70s is carpenter you know is argento is that stuff and and there's a sort of strange culture or you know it's a marketing culture really of tropes ideas merchandise posters all designed to sort of glorify um those you know handful of slasher movies and genre establishers from the 70s and 80s and kind of put them on a pedestal and very much consciously to put everything in their shadow. Um, and that was kind of a radical idea to me because, you know, I, I've i seen all those movies and, and there's things about them to enjoy for sure. But, you know, like any film, I think there's some good and perhaps at the time innovative things about them. And then there's things that are just objectively not good you know, so so this idea that you kind of put them, um, you know, up there and do this sort of hagiographic thing about the people who made them and, and all of this seemed kind of bizarre to me. But it seems, you know, now seeing these people on Instagram and the extent to which there's a, you know, there's people who self-identify as horror fans, you know, i.e. hold up, you know... Um, Scream and Halloween and, uh, you know, whatever else, the thing and whatever else they like as, you know, a key part of their identity seems to be this marketing culture about, um, you know, rebellion in America. It seems the idea of putting horror on a pedestal, on the one hand, it helps sell merchandise and helps sell special Blu-ray editions. And on the other hand, for the people involved, I think it it seems to be a way to you know, not like the same things that everyone else in America likes and to slightly have some socially acceptable proof of an alternative value system that I like horror movies and that says something about me. Um, So, you know, I think that's interesting and fine culturally. I don't think it's the best thing for the work because I'd say about a term like post-horror, as soon as you make something post, you know, very much like post-modernism, it has nothing new to say it's all in reference to modernism or it's in reference to horror, the film, those films of the seventies. And so I think as soon as you define a genre as post anything else, you create this self referential loop that's very hard to get away from. And so I'd be reluctant to do that. I think, to be honest, I think too many horror films do that. My interest in horror or in genre filmmaking in general is its limitlessness its lack of having to obey conventions, social niceties, politeness, uh, respect for authority, anything else. It's To me, the thrill of it 
is that you can take what's visionary and take what's psychological and unadulteratedly put it on screen and show it to other people. You know, it's that kind of wildness that I'm admiring in other filmmakers and that I aspire to myself, almost the unpolluted, uncensored nature of horror in its potential or genre filmmaking in its potential. Um, and I think, you know, if we were to argue about terms, I prefer the term genre filmmaking as opposed to horror itself, because you tell most people you make horror movies and they, you know, automatically assume a lot of things about you and, and mm. go, oh, I don't like horror movies. Whereas, you know, I'd like, you know, I'd like the films that I made to be, uh, I wouldn't say enjoyed, but to be experienced by people who are, um, uh, you know, not horror movie fans in terms of what that popularly means, the Saw franchise and The Conjuring, and even now things like Get Out and, and Us. I mean, that would... Mm. that That's kind of a weird thing because it's, um, it's one of those terms that pins uh, horror down to... or the, uh, creates the sense that its success as a work of horror is only measurable on one particular in one particular criteria and that but, is its capacity to scare. Yeah, which, I think I often yeah. see this, you know, this critique, you know, on on Metacritic or Rotten Tomatoes or whatever, that'll be the thing that comes up about the horror movie. Um I think the key thing is not whether you're scaring people as such, but to me it's more how you're scaring them. You know, anybody can can get on a roller coaster and you can give them a bunch of, you know, bumps and twists and turns. But, you know, I'm more interested in scaring people with ideas and feelings because, to me, that's more truthful. There, you know, there are a lot of ideas and feelings in the world that are genuinely scary. Much, much scarier than anything jumping out of a closet with a knife, you know. And, and that's not a fiction. That's the truth. That there's a lot of scary stuff out there. And the things that you don't know are so scary you don't even know that you don't know how scary they are you know there's you know every human being has a great right to be scared all the time and that's exciting and interesting and and um you know uh, uh a great gateway to the realms of the unconscious for me so that's um you know I, i'd say that's what i value and you know that's what i admire about you know the kind of place that somebody like David Lynch or someone like that has got to with his work that, you know, when you make a work like Get Out or Us that's so overtly sociopolitical, you're very much engaging in that discourse. And that's fine. Um, but it's it's to some extent, it's a one trick pony. Whereas, you know, David Lynch is, you know, particularly with that new Twin Peaks or something, he's making work that's so bizarrely visionary and out there and off the map that there's nothing anyone can really find to say about it. And in some ways, that's what what excites me about horror genre filmmaking is like, I, I want that area of archetype, that area of psychology that transcends pairs of opposites, that, that you can't talk about in binary terms, that simply is in its monolith, all of its monolithic terror and beauty. To me, that's the most truthful thing. And so... That's what I'd like to see more of. You know, I, I admired The Witch for the, for that same reason. I felt it was outside of pure sociopolitical commentary. Although it had that dimension to it, I felt there was something more primal and universal and archetypal about it. And, you know, to me, that was the most successful in these past few years of, um, of that new breed of A24 post-horror movie, as you might want to deem them. Yeah. Um, yeah. I did think I did think um kind of one of the most um interesting things or the most successful conceit of the witch was the fact that it's it manages to detach itself so cleanly from history in the sense because simply because it's it's presenting a purely subjective history because it's saying because there's that beautiful uh bit of thing at the opening where it's um saying how this isn't this isn't something that was documented or this isn't something that was strict strictly a story but these are all the types of things that people are described as experiencing and it's weaving a narrative from um the parts that you can find in common between purely subjective and often extremely unreliable 
um, things. And so, but I, I yeah. think that's you know, it, it's it's even a it's a bigger idea than that. It's more profound. You know, when I say my interest in the anima, you know, that film totally does that in that it is it's essentially from the teenage girl's point of view, um, and I think that's profoundly interesting. And I think it's it you know that sort of the ability of film to sh sh put you so wholly within another entirely subjective perspective is its greatest profundity today because i think that the very nature of you know today in our in our sort of post religious world we're so inclined to think about the world as fundamentally material and therefore objective history as being something that even exists whereas the truth, you know, the far more profound and scary truth is that there is no such thing as objective history. That, you know, perhaps reality is better conceived as, you know, uh, uh, as the phenomenological experience of different centers of consciousness, i.e. different flawed subjective perspectives. And in that way, perhaps, you know, that is the real power of fiction, is the ability to show us that truth. Um, and so... That's why I think sociopolitical commentary is inherently something that relies on a, a, a material or, 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 or objective worldview and acknowledges and reinforces an existence of that. Whereas I'm far more interested in, um, in, in uh, the horror of subjectivity full stop, you know. So. That's awesome. <laughs> cool. Well, this, yeah. So... I guess the main thing that I can glean from all this is that I'm very excited to see your next works. And also, do you have like a title, or do you have like a, a title or time frame in mind for this book you've described? Because that sounds really interesting. So the book, the book is very funny um, because I never really intended to set out to write a book. I just wanted to answer all the questions that I had that I didn't yet, um, that nobody seemed to be able to give me an acceptable answer to. And I read virtually every book on screenwriting and dramatic theory and, um, you know, uh, philosophies of theatre and all of that. And it, and it seemed to me that the, the key questions that I had, sort of fundamental, rational questions, um, nobody could answer for me. And, and that seemed... Um, and so I just started out trying to work these things out. And so my, you know, I think the title of the book would be, you know, something really ambitious, like, um, you know, the history and rational theory of Western drama or something, you know, that big. Um, and, you know, the kind of the golden key to, to the book is what I described, this very niche language derived from Jung that, you know, very few people in the world, you know, um, proportionally have, have been trained in or had the opportunity to learn. And it's the golden key because it allows you to quantify character. And that's the fundamental question of Western drama is, you know, you, you can read any screenwriting book and it will tell you, well, the character changes and by the end of the movie, they're different. And, and that's just sort of taken as a given. But, but I would go, well, how are they different? How does one precisely quantify the nature in which they're different? And how have they changed? And it turns out to answer that question is a profound question about human experience and psychology, you know, absolutely, never mind just as applied to drama. Um, but using this language, this psychophysical language derived from Jung of 60 or 70 unique terms that describe character, uh, the, you know, I'm able to do that. I'm able to say in archetypal narratives, how does the character change? And and I use this language to describe that change. Um, and if you look at, you know, if you look at most failed dramas, so, you know, most movies that are not very good, almost by definition, most films are failures, and you look at why they fail, you know, the problems are extremely common, and they're always to do with failure to quantify character. So the protagonist doesn't change. You know, if your protagonist doesn't change, you're going to have real trouble making a compelling film. You, you won't be able to end it, for one thing. Um, you'll have to do a sort of cheat ending that will leave everyone, you know, might leave them thinking you're a bit clever, but it won't leave them, uh, it won't leave their spirit renewed. 
you know, whereas if you can, um, uh, if you can um, map and make playable for your actors character change across time, that that's really the key of of Western drama. And so I don't know if I'll ever write this book. I hope to be able to use um, use it first and foremost, and then I suppose if I'm ever old and infirm enough to no longer be able to make films, but um, well enough to write, I might attempt to write it. But the major challenge would be initially putting on paper this psychophysical system, because at this point it nobody's ever successfully put it in a book for the uninitiated reader. There's only people who've been who did my specific directing course or the acting course that lo- runs alongside it who've been trained in it. There's... And that's Central St. Martin's, was that? So this is Drama Centre at Central St. Martin's. So uh, an incredibly uh, maverick drama school that was set up in the 60s by two sort of borderline geniuses, Yet Malgram and Christopher Fettis, um, who uh, broke off from Central School of Speech and Drama and created this school. And this language, this system, was the foundation of that school, um, was its kind of guiding logic. And now Drama Centre has been absorbed into Central St. Martin's, which um, is a kind of (laughs) uh, slow process of suffocation, I suppose, in terms of those original values, in that the school exists somewhat like it did, but certainly not in the form that Yat and Christopher had quite envisioned it, which was probably too radical to be sustainable. But nevertheless, only people who've been there, and they don't, not many people, you know, there's five directors a year tops, and you know, 16 actors. And so, you know, you're talking 20 people a year for 50 years, it's not very many people. So only people who've been trained in it, you know, and even then only the ones who've who've invested in the work and kept it up um, know about this. You know, my professor has a PhD on it, which is virtually impenetrable to anybody who hasn't been trained in it. Um, there's an even more esoteric book written by Christopher Vettis, one of the founders of the school. Um, but, uh, you know, it's really incredible work and it's, um, you know, genuinely profound, I think, to me, you know, it would be so much better for so many people's actual lives if they had a better understanding of character. I mean, you know, imagine how much better everybody's, you know, relationships and dating experiences would be, for example, if people were better able to judge character. And, you know, that's so easily and popularly dismissed as being superficial. But that just implies that character is unknowable. Whereas, in fact, you know, if you have any training in reading people's psychology, and I don't mean superficial body language stuff, I mean, you know, a a deep understanding, then actually, you know, um, people are, uh, um, you know, they're, they're complex, but they're not totally unknowable, you know, as you know from the people that you know well in your lives. So, you know, you, you can get some sense of who they are. And so if everybody were trained to get that sense faster, I think the world would be a a much more um uh a, a much more peaceful place one might say. Um so if we were to take um what you described as kind of a, a dramatological analysis of a failed film. Right. Um which is as you say is a lot of films. I know one one film I think that is roundly regarded as being an exceptional failure is one that we were discussing recently, which is Troll Two. Right. Uh, okay. How would you? I mean, I don't know how recently you've seen it. That was one I brought up because it it felt to me like it's you know it's it's in that category of like terror bad movies sure. uh, as, as possessing no inherent worth beyond the um, sheer absurdity of its its of the heights of its failure, but. Yeah. But my experience of it was that it was objectively good in a lot of ways. Um, it, there was a genuine air of menace. The characters were varied and well-established. Um, I'm not sure if they changed other than into plants or um, or into people aware of um, the, the, the way to escape the wrath of the goblins. But it well, certainly kept its pace going. I think if... You, yeah, it, it certainly has pace and it has a certain intention to it. But, you know, I would describe it as, you know, an absolute failure of characterization across multiple levels. So, 
you know, the, the characters as written are not written with, you know, what might popularly be called depth in that, you know, they don't, you know, yes, they absolutely don't change. They're, they have very few characteristics, i.e. they, you know, the boy isn't mainly defined by being a boy, the father mainly by being a father. There's very little personal or specific about them in the way that might speak of a real person. Um, you know, and then you have the problem that not only have you written these these parts with not much to them and an unmotivated dialogue, you know, on a line-by-line -line basis, but you've given it to actors who are not actors either. So then, you know, a really excellent actor might just about find a way to motivate those lines that have no motivation. But these actors don't. They, they play even more broadly and um, at a simplified level the characteristics that have been so, um, you know, written with such brevity into the script. And so you get these very two-dimensional, um, what would you call them, sort of constructs of ciphers yeah as a representation of a human being um that is you know borderline disturbing in what a an uncanny mockery it is of what a human being actually is i think that's one of the aspects in which the film is grotesque is you know as with any bad film that's poorly acted it's hard to watch because it's in that uncanny va valley where you're seeing real human beings attempt to represent other real human beings, but in a way that's so um, totally insufficient as to mock what it is to be a human being. And I think that's the kind of thing that makes a film like that or any B-movie so, um, so sort of, uh, you know, fundamentally offensive on any aesthetic level, in a way that can be enjoyed as kitsch. But it's definitely not a functional drama in the say, way that, say, a Shakespeare play is. I mean, my, my take on it has often been that I think it's the, the, the sort of ambiguity of self-awareness that seems to kind of run through it. The fact that the person sort of knew they were making a bad film and they weren't... You see, when, when you get people who have a vision and they're making something, they're pursuing something as a vision, yeah. uh, even if they're lacking certain qualities or, or there is a fundamental absurdness to it, it can be great. And sometimes that can be far more uh, watching or engaging than, um, than a film that is kind of, is someone who, uh, who believes what they're doing is in some way below them or, or understands what they're doing is trash and therefore thereby kind of lowers their standards. So Yeah, you, I mean, want, you want a strange middle ground of self-awareness. But, you know, I think every use of cliché, you know, consciously or not, has some of that self-awareness built into it mm. because it's, it's fundamentally imitative. It's not coming from an impulse in the artist, the author themselves. It's coming from something they've seen. So mm. it's got this level of, of self-consciousness about it that comes from imitation, conscious or not. You know, and I think that's that's the what you're seeing with the author there. You know, I think the the thing that makes the film watchable and, and in its own category, you know, a sort of extreme example of something, if you're not quite sure what, you know, is is the the conv the the gusto. You know, it's just the sheer amount of libido channeled into that imitation, that clawing for something. I think um, I think a lot of it comes from spite. Like <laughs> right. Like it's sort of it knows it's disgusting but not in a way that's kind of not in a way that's even trying to be subversive just the way that's getting kind of one imagines just a kind of like a wry chuckle yeah. of someone presenting something so horrific but I find I, I, like I don't know I don't know if I feel... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if I see the the level of postmodernism in it that you're attempting to project upon it as artifact <laughs> you know i think that most bad movies and you know having made some you know bad music videos and stuff myself and certainly seen other people do that you know you know regularly you know most bad filmmaking comes not from ill intentions but from um lack of objectivity it comes from lose because obviously it, like this is what we were it relates to what we were talking about earlier that if you're going to represent someone else's subjective experience, well, you know, you either need to be that person or you better have some degree of objectivity 
on that subject of experience in order to be able to represent it using craft, i.e. in a material way. Um, and so in a film, obviously, it's very difficult to be in the first person uh, and to represent your own experience, because at the very least, you have to put it through another actor, another body. And so you're, um, you know, you're, you're having to retain an incredible degree of objectivity to balance multiple subjective viewpoints within a fictional framework. And that's really hard to do. And it's really hard to do when you've been looking at the same material for two years, you know, to go, is this really how she would feel when she walks in this room? You know, that's a really hard question to answer when you created the room, you created the person, and you did that two years ago, and you've now been looking at that room for two years. You know, how does that room feel when you first walk into it? And I think, you know, most bad directing, certainly, and bad writing, you know, it's that lack of being able to retain objectivity on fundamentally difficult, complex interactions of subjectivity, which is what a film is. And so I think, you know, he I'm sure he went in with the intention to make a good movie with Troll 2, you know, or, or a good movie to his taste, at least. Um, and, you know, and, and so you, you witness a, a, a failure to retain objectivity or maybe a failure to, of, to have the craft to represent other people's subjectivity with objectivity, if you see what I mean. Mm. And so you get this mess of of the the author, the director's subjectivity. That's essentially what you're seeing. You're seeing all of his weird biases, all of his weird, um, you know, personal idiosyncrasies. His utter loathing of vegetarians. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you see the same thing with The Room. You know, the reason The Room is fascinating is because when you've sat there for two hours and suffered it, you have this incredible insight into who Tommy Wiseau is because the film is so flawed and therefore expressive of all of his um, psychologies and, and hang-ups and, and difficulties and, and prejudices and nightmarish fantasies. You know, it's fascinating as outsider art, you know, and I'd put Troll 2 in, in that sort of category were it to be appreciated rather than some sort of evil genius... Um, postmodernist creating this you know uh, beautiful kitsch object you know he, he's not Jeff Koons the guy who, who made that um, you know uh, I think he's uh, he's he's a guy who wanted to make an awesome movie about you know goblins and, and small town America yeah I mean I was gonna wrap up there but I'm kind of curious as to I mean have you read much Lovecraft I know kind of we talked about the, the legacy with film but are you much of a fan of his writings so i've read you know the famous ones i wouldn't say i'm a lovecraft nut um you know and i'm not not a huge reader of fiction um in general uh but you know i've read uh, enough of it yeah uh, at least to know where i was at the lovecraft festival because <laughs> <laughs> i mean what i'm curious about that is that one of the one of the central criticisms that's leveled at lovecraft one of the reasons why his uh, critical reception is so polarized, other than the obvious racism, is um, well. I mean, that's that's another issue. I mean, no, he yeah <laughs> was objective. He was a bit fucked up in that direction, um, but like he doesn't really. His sense of character is something that's hard to pin down because on a certain level, um, on a certain level, he he is very express. He is very expressive about characters, even if it is just the case of the character of himself coming through the through those he's depicting. Um, but it's what he's doing is trying. It creates an interesting interplay of kind of objectivity and subjectivity, which I think connects to how how you described um, how that would work through film and through directing, in the sense that he. Um, He's in pursuit of um, depicting an objectively, um, well, a, a, a categorically objective cosmos, yeah. uh, and the failure of um, of the kind of the subjectivity, or you know, or the failure of the uh, subjectively limited uh, cognition of the protagonist, sure. or indeed any human figure, to to properly pass that, and then the the horror arises from that shortcoming. But I mean, I think yeah. the interesting thing about you know about. Lovecraft, and it's what makes him distinctive and 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 um, 
and what he is, but it's also what makes him niche and largely popularly, you know, most people on the street haven't necessarily heard of Lovecraft, you know, and I think that, um, you know, he's not the world's greatest dramatist, you know, not saying that he couldn't have been, but he wasn't, I suppose, because he, he's, he's on the side of the cosmos. Mm. You know, I think Lovecraft himself, psychology, he has the kind of elderly remoteness where he's more interested in, in the world of the stories and the tropes of the stories and the images of the stories than he is about the characters. And you see this with, you know, um, other artists, I think, who, who have a, vi a cosmic visionary perspective that doesn't or that doesn't easily leave room for human subjectivity. I think that you know I put Jodorowsky in the same kind of category, who is a man with obvious sort of vision of the cosmos, and not an enormous idea of how what it's like to be a human being in that cosmos. I think Lovecraft <laughs> has some sense of that. Certainly, his own sense of what it was is to be a human being in that cosmos, but. I wouldn't say he has multivaried perspectives mm -hmm. on what it is to be. You know, it's, it's a similar experience for every one of his humans in that cosmos, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd say that kind of that may be one of the clues to why he's been so enduring beyond, you know, the inno innovation of the monsters and the tropes and things. The fact that he is presenting in some senses a kind of a blank canvas or something that can be in certain respects a blank canvas that he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't pin it down to the humans so these this universe is able to continue without them but it's just yeah, i just I... thought that was interesting that he he's sort of he wasn't initially a focal point of what we're considering kind of like the modern the 2010s horror wave sure. but he seems to have become an increasing part of it as the as the thing we're now seeing began to gather pace and began to kind of formulate its own terms possibly even kind of like you know maybe maybe as it's going beyond um what you described as being you know the the legacy of the 1970s and that wave of films well uh, i think he has an increasing relevance because you know people are facing the void more than ever you know and i think that's you know the the absolute lack of of um you know reliable superego which is definitely, uh, you know, a big aspect of our generation psychology that, you know, nobody has a father they can trust, you know, that, 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 that leads you very quickly to the, the, um, you know, I don't want to call it nihilism, but the void facing perspective of Lovecraft and the, um, terror of what lies in the void left by superego you know because if you can't trust your father if you can't trust god to even exist you know then then what monsters exist in his place um and that's an interesting question for the dark realms of the unconscious you know and certainly one that we'll want to get to like I do hope this isn't your last appearance on Weird Signal, basically. Uh, um, yeah, this You'd be very great. welcome to come back for one of our kind of film-specific episodes. Okay, great. Yeah. Super. Yeah. So, but yeah, and and, and the Dark Realms of the Unconsciousness, and, and perhaps we can explore uh, the, ge like, pick up with this uh, in terms of, like, the gender dimension of that uh, when we come back. Yeah, I think there's there's definitely interesting and, and um, specific things to say about that, you know, if one wants to avoid popular controversy which is a difficult thing to do these days <laughs> so yeah that would be a very interesting and delicate discussion to have yeah cool well i'm sure we'll pick the right film for it um, great but yeah until then um i don't know if you've heard the podcast before we have a we have a particular sign-off which is um so well it was a, a sign-off conceived uh, for want of getting something that actually sounded good so we basically just say stay weird and keep it signal so until then uh, I've been Lucy Brady uh, with Gabriel Gatman and stay weird, weird and keep it signal thank you, good night and thanks for coming on